the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, the ushers, who are very penitent, are ready to throw one tonight. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hands and they will bring one to you so that you can follow along with us in our study. They're going to throw it at me. And we're in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be picking up in verse 21 and going through the end of the chapter tonight. By show of hands, how many of you here are married? Wow, a lot of hands. How many of you have parents? How many of you are children living at home? Now this is getting weird, you know. How many of you have bosses? Look around. As we come to verse 21 of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul turns a corner with us. We've been talking about the walk of the believer, or the lifestyle of the Christian that's been saved by the grace of God. And as we come to this verse, Paul begins to talk to us about the place where the walk of the believer is demonstrated. And that is in everyday relationships. Specifically, he's going to talk to us, first of all, about marriage. And then he's going to talk to us about being parents and having children and being Christians in the presence of our children, raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And he's going to talk to children about how to deal with their parents, how to relate with their parents. And then, of course, bosses and employees. And what we find is that the measure of a Christian is not the strength of their profession when they're in church, but rather it's the quality of their walk when they're at home with their families or when they're out in the world interacting with other people. Of all the things that we enjoy in this world, in this life, the only thing that we have that has the potential of being eternal that can go beyond the boundaries of this life, are the relationships that we have with the people that are close to us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, the Apostle Paul wrote, and he tells us something that we already know. He says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And that's true. None of the possessions that we have, the physical entities that we enjoy, none of that can come with us when we die. But the relationships that we have and the spiritual fruit that is born as a result of those relationships, those things go beyond the boundaries of time and space. And those things are eternal. There's an eternal nature to them. And so the true measure of a person's wealth, at least in this life, is not the material possessions that they acquire, but rather it's the people that we're linked with and related to. So, if it's true that our relationships with our husbands and wives, with our children and with our parents, and with those around us, those that we work with and interact with out in society, if those are the things that determine our wealth, then what are the keys to our enjoyment of those things and the secrets of seeing those things succeed? And so the Apostle Paul dives into this. He begins in verse 21, and he tells us here, he says, Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And as Paul introduces and kind of segues into this whole arena of relationships, he gives to us the context of everything that he's going to say from here all the way up through chapter 6, verse 9 as it relates to husbands and wives alike, and as it relates to children and parents alike, and as it relates to employees and bosses, or really any other relationship, what he's telling us is that the platform of all relationships is in this thing of submission. That submission is the basis or the platform whereupon all relationships work. Now, when we hear the word submit, 
If you are anything like me, immediately we go into defense mode, right? Because it brings to our mind visions of tyranny or memories of hostile authority that we have from our past, of experiences that we had where submission was directly linked to the whole concept of obedience and authority. But in the Bible, the word submit is not used in that context, that is, the context of authority and obedience. But rather, submission in the biblical sense is is order in respect to a God-given role. It's order in respect to a God-given role. That's why at the end of verse 21 there, if you notice, it says submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. Because the place that we take, the role that we play in the relationships that we have is not something that's been conjured up by man or defined by human society. But rather, it's something that's been ordained by God from the foundation of the world. And in fear of God, we are called to embrace the place that we are called to fulfill within the relationships that we have. And so submission is in order, is order in respect to the role that God has given. And thus, the premise for this whole discussion on relationships is that all relationships are based upon an order of mutual submission. Now, I'm not talking so much about the casual encounters that we have, although it's true in that context also, but more in the context of what Paul is speaking of as it relates to husbands and wives, children and parents, and, you know, bosses and employees in those areas that we're so familiar with. This whole concept of order in relationship is all around us. Biblically, we see it in the heavenly realm. We see, as we read the pages of Scripture, we see the Son of God, Jesus, who was the expression of God Himself, who said He he didn't count it robbery to be called equal with God, but yet we hear Him saying that He does always only those things that please the Father. That which I hear, He said, that is what I speak. He said, my meat My food, the source of my being, my essence, everything I am, exists to do the will of Him that sent me. And we see the Son in submission to the Father. Likewise, we also see the Spirit, the third part of the Holy Trinity, the divine Godhead. And Jesus tells us that when the Spirit comes, His ministry, His purpose will be to point people to me. And so we see the Godhead... Three persons, distinct, but yet unified, one. The Lord our God is one, and yet even in the Godhead itself, there are roles, there is submission, and there is authority. The Son is in submission to the Father, the Spirit doing the will, pointing to the Son. But yet in that context, we see there's such a perfection in the way that God is able to accomplish His purposes in the earth. In the angelic realm, we see Michael, the archangel, and and we get the idea that he is the one who's in charge of the military, the battle that takes place in the heavenly realms. And under him, there are rank and file seraphim and cherubim that fulfill their purposes. We read of Gabriel, who is over the messengers. And in this angelic realm, the host, as they're called in the Bible, there is this perfect order that God has established, that he has ordained. And it's within the context and the framework of that order that the kingdom of God is able to advance, to move forward, and His purposes are secured as long as no one breaks rank. It's in the breaking of rank, as we see with Lucifer, who was created a cherub, the anointed cherub that covered, but wanting to be something other than what he was created to be and launched a rebellion in heaven, and the result was chaos. So in the angelic in the heavenly realm we see this idea of submission in relationship causing smoothness we observe that it works if you consider with me a successful military there's order and rank there's the commander-in-chief there's the secretary of defense under him the generals over the various branches There's lieutenants and captains, officers and staff sergeants, corporals and privates, and there is order within the ranks of a successful military, and therefore they are able to conquer and able to obtain their objectives. But you can imagine the chaos if there was a lack of order. 
In fact, if you've been following what's going on over in Afghanistan, a, 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 a rogue soldier broke rank and went on a shooting spree and murdered a bunch of civilians. And look at the outcome of just one person stepping out of rank, stepping out of line, breaking the divine order that's been established. And one person that does that has the ability to undermine and maybe even uproot all of what's been done there over a period of many years to completely compromise the mission, just one person who steps out of the order that they were assigned. And what Paul is telling us tonight as we break into this portion of Ephesians is that as it is in those realms, so also as it relates to marriage, as it relates to family, as it relates to society, there are God-given roles that are in place by the Lord to give order and to ensure success in society and in the family. It's not an issue of equality. It's an issue of stability. And so he begins by talking to the wives in verse 22. He says, wives, submit. Ooh, defenses go up. Rocks are lifted high. The preacher takes guard, you know. <laughs> Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, concerning this issue, this area of submission as it relates to the wives, Paul tells us four things in these few verses that are essential concerning our understanding of this concept of submission. First of all, he tells us right there at the onset that submission, the submission of the wife specifically, is something that is to be willful. Notice with me there again in verse 22. He says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband. That is, that it is to be an act, a willing act of the wife to place herself within that role, that place that God has designed for her within the marriage. It's not something that she's to be beaten into or forced into by some domineering male or by the directive of some religious authority, some church establishment that commands that the wives submit to, to their husbands, but rather submission in the context of the wife in the marriage is to be a position that is willingly embraced out of faith and trust in the Lord that they're fulfilling His will. So it's something that's to be willful, not forced. Second of all, Paul tells us that Submission, the submission of the wife, is singular, if you're taking notes. Notice there, he says, submitting yourselves, or submit yourselves unto your own husbands. The submission of a wife to her husband does not connotate nor, um, what's the word, you know, endorse the fact that women or that, uh, that a woman in some way is under the authority of men. Or that the women are less than the men. Again, the Bible does not teach this. It doesn't teach that men are greater or better or more important than women. That's not the biblical concept. That's not the framework of this concept of submission. To say that the woman is less than the man, or that she is under him in some way intellectually, or subservient in some way, you know, uh, innovatively, that she is less than, to say that, would be the same thing as to say that Jesus is less than the Father. And yet that would be blasphemy. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, it tells us that he is the express image of the Father, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus was fully God, and he carried all of the authority, all of the power, and all of the personality of God himself. He wasn't less than God, but yet he embraced the role of submission to the will of the Father. If it be possible, he said, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Not less than, 
but in submission to, for the sake of accomplishing the divine ordinance or the divine purpose. So, in a marriage, the husband has been given by God the place of the final say. The last word, if you would. The buck stops with him. But that's for the sake of order within the home. Not because the woman is less than, it's just the way God ordained things to be. But it is to be to her own husband. A woman is not to be pushed around, nor is she to submit to the abuse or the, you know, chauvinistic attitudes of men that carry these convictions that are unbiblical or extra-biblical. Submission of a wife is to her own husband. The Bible is clear. The third thing that Paul mentions concerning this concept of submission is that the submission of a wife is an act of worship to the Lord. Look what he says there at the end of verse 22. He says, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. There are times in this arena of submission that all of us, male and female alike, are called upon to yield or to go along with or to embrace things that we don't necessarily agree with. Or things that we strongly feel are the wrong direction in a given situation. Or things that we wouldn't do if it were our call. If we were the one that was calling the shots, we wouldn't do. But part of our embracing our role in a relationship in the fear of God is to say, Okay, Lord, you know that I don't agree, and you know this isn't what I would do. But in obedience to you, okay, I'll go along, I'll submit, I will walk in submission to this as an act of worship, an act of obedience to your will because you know what's best. Submission is an act of worship in the heart and in the mind of a wife. And then finally, Paul says that it is also an act of wisdom. Look with me at verse 23. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. He he draws this comparison between the church being subject to Christ and the woman or the wife being subject to or in submission to her husband. Now, what happens when the church or a church throws off the authority of Christ's lordship and just decides, you know what, we're just going to go and do our own thing? Forget what Jesus says, forget what the Bible says, forget what is revealed, his his will or his direction for for the church or for the ministry. We're just going to go with the Spirit. We're going to let the wind just drive where we go. And so everybody just relax and we're going to start to let the spirit move in here. And if you feel like making a noise or barking like a dog or chicken, whatever you feel like, just, just, just let the... And all of a sudden what we've done as a church is we've thrown off the lordship of Christ because we feel like we could do it better. We know more what we need than what he says. And what happens is that Christianity... Very quickly, the syllables get changed around in that, and it becomes church insanity. It's not Christianity anymore, it's church insanity. Why? Because we've, it's like, you you know, like a chicken, right? You cut off the head, what happens? The thing runs around and it looks more alive than it ever did before, but it's really dead. And see, a church without the lordship of Christ is dead. It's, it's rogue. It's, 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 it's a monster. It's demonic. It's wrong, see. Now, I'm not saying that a woman who usurps is demonic. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that for a woman to take her place in submission out of obedience to the Lord and reverence for his order is an act of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 1 says, Every wise woman builds her house, but the foolish plucketh it down with her hands. And sadly, in the United States of America, and really all over the world, the streets of society are strong with the broken boards of homes where part of the issue 
is that women are unwilling to embrace their God-given role within the marriage. And yet Paul says that it's wisdom, it's wise, it's worship. So submission, as it relates to the wife, is something that Paul tells to us very clearly here that it's an act of worship, it's an act of wisdom, he tells us that it's singular. It's something that uh, the wife submits, uh, you know, to, to her own husband. And then he moves on. He talks to the husbands in verse 25. He begins dealing with us. And he has a lot more to say to the husbands than he does to the wives. But if the wives are to submit, then what is the husband's role of submission within the marriage? Because he says, in, remember, back in verse 21, he said, Submit yourselves one to another, and this concept of mutual submission is the oil that causes relationships to function. So what is the husband's role of submission? He tells us there in verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So the role of the husband, or his part, your part, men, our part, in ensuring the success and the longevity within the marital relationship is that we are to love our wives. Some of the men leaving. <laughs> the word love there in the Greek, it's the, it's the Greek word agape. We've talked about this word, you know what it means. Agape love, it's the highest expression of love that the language allows. And it means selfless, unconditional love by choice. That means when there is feeling and also when there is not. Agape love is not based upon the butterflies you felt when you first met. Or the erotic things that were stirred within you when you were young and youthful and spry. That's not agape. That's not what it's based upon. That's eros. It's a totally different form of love. But this is agape. It's selfless. And it's by choice. And it's eternal. It's love that's unconditional and based upon Commitment that is made. Now, he doesn't just give us the command that we're to love our wives, but he also gives to us examples. He tells us that we're to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? What can we look at biblically as an example in Christ loving the church for us as men is how to love our wives. Well, he gives us right here in the text four examples. He says, first of all, we're to love sacrificially. It says that he gave himself for it. If you notice there at the end of verse 25, that he gave himself for his bride. Notice that it does not say that he gave of himself, but it tells us that he gave all of himself. The very foundation of marriage, when God ordained it, when he made it, back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother, and he will be joined unto his wife, or he will cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And the very foundation of marriage was that the man was to leave something that was of old. That he was to give up the old life, the old relationships, everything that was of his entire being before that time that he makes that vow. And that he's to be cleaving to his wife. And the bond of that relationship is to bring them into unity and their new life moves forward with separation from everything that was. He leaves his father and mice. There, there's a sacrifice in there. And the idea behind sacrificial love is that there is nothing in the life of the man that takes priority over his wife. You think of what Jesus did. He was with the father. In John chapter 17, we hear his prayer as he said, Father, glorify them with the glory that I had with you from the foundation of the world. And, and, and you get this idea of what it must have been like for the Father and the Son to be in unity, in glory, in heaven, in the throne. And yet Jesus, out of love and a desire to get a bride, he stepped aside from that position of glory. He robed himself in human flesh and he took a huge step down to become one of us. He sacrificed the glory of heaven 
and became less than what it would be for a man to become a worm for the sake of loving you and I and demonstrating that love. He laid down his life. He sacrificed the glories of heaven. Not only that, but when we see him, the scars, the wounds that were inflicted, the body that he was abused in, that body will still be the body that he inhabits. Because in the book of Revelation, John looks and he sees a lamb having been slain from the foundation of the world. The scars, they were there. They were present in the visible appearance of the Lord in heaven. He sacrificed. He gave himself for the sake of his bride. It's sacrificial love. And it's the kind of love, men, that we are called to give to our wives. wherein We're willing to lay down our lives, keeping nothing back for ourselves. There's nothing that we wouldn't give for them. Now, I talk to men sometimes that they say, they would say, I would die for my wife. I would take the bullet. I'd fall on the sword. You know, they, they, they use these kind of phrases. And you know what? I don't doubt that. But I'll tell you this. It's a whole lot easier to die for your bride. Some men wish they would die, you know. <laughs> it's a whole lot easier to die for your bride than it is to live for your bride taking up the cross and dying to yourself. And yet that's the kind of love that the Bible is telling us as husbands that we're to give to our wives. See, if we live for our wives in a way where they know that we're dead to ourselves, then they know that we love them more than we love ourselves. And that's the idea behind what Paul is saying, is that there's to be a sacrificial love. Nothing is to take priority over our love for our wives. He moves on in verse 26 and he says, not only is it sacrificial love, but it's also sanctifying love. He says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The word sanctify means to be set apart, to be consecrated as one's personal treasure. To be set apart, she's to be set apart and consecrated as one's personal treasure. Now, men, we are extremely simple beings. We're way different than our female counterparts, you know. But we're organized. Even though our wives don't think we are, we really are organized. Because here's how men work. Is that we have all of these little compartments... And every area of our life has its own little compartment. We have our job compartment. And we have it organized. We know where things are in there. We operate in it. We're good. We, we have this interaction with our job compartment constantly. And we have it under control, at least to the best of our ability. You know. We also have our hobby compartment. The things that we do for recreation, the things that we do on the side, are, are, are little things, you know, that we like to do. Some go to the gym, you know, some are into bowling, some are into, you know, some other sports, or they have softball, or whatever. But we have, like, the hobby compartment, and, and, and we know the hobby compartment. That's there. It's, it's its own little thing, you know. We have our house compartment, you know, we know that we have to change the filter and, the, you know, the well, the thing coming in the house. So we got to get salt for the water softener. And we know what light bulbs are out and that they have to be changed. And we know where the leak is in the roof. And we know, you know, we, we, we have our house compartment and everything in there. It's organized. We have this relationship with it and all. We have our toys compartment. And our toys, you know, our golf clubs, you know, nobody touches the golf clubs or whatever it is, you know, or, you know, the uh, muscle car or whatever, you know, whatever the toy is for that particular man, we all have them. You know, we're men. What do they say? Small boys, small toys, big boys, big toys, you know, and, and we all have, we have a toy compartment, us men, you know, we have our responsibilities compartment. The things that we know that we have to do, you know, the chores that we have around the house, you know, dishes after dinner, you know, that's, this, is, this is okay, I have a compartment for this, I'm aware of it, I, I'm, I operate within it. We have our children compartment, you know, we, we understand what's going on with them. We have our sports compartment, you know, whether it's the NFL or the NBA or the NHL or, you know, the MMA, whatever it is, we have a sport, every one of us has some kind of a sport, maybe it's swimming or golf or whatever, or cricket or depending who you are, tennis, you know, 
But we have our sports compartment that we like to be active. And we have our cars compartment. We know when the oil needs to be changed. We know when the last time we washed the car was. We know if we need tires. We know how much we've put into it. We know how much we paid for it. We, we know everything about our cars. It's just kind of the way that we were. But here's the point with all these compartments. Is that we have a one-at-a-time policy. I, if I'm in my job compartment, don't hit me with the responsibility compartment, okay? I can't handle that. It's too much for me. I'm in here. I know where things are. Don't mix the compartments, you know. And, and, and that's the way we are. We don't. Now, women, they are completely different. They think we're unorganized. They're the ones that are, you, you're the ones that are unorganized because you have no order, nothing, nothing at all. It's all just one big whirling thought, all of it in there at once, you know. I, I, I you know, I, I put the kids to bed and, and, and it's, you know, it's quiet. It's nine o'clock. The house is finally silent. The dishes are done. And, and I sit down and there's Georgia. She's having a cup of tea. And I sit down next to Georgia and we talk a little bit. And, you know, we start, you, you know, not, not intimate, but intimate, you know, just intimately talking with each other. And I'm looking her in the eyes and, and I'm telling her how much I love her. I appreciate her, everything about her. And, and she's looking at me and it's, we're, we're having a moment. And I said, what are you thinking about? She says, I think I left a gallon of milk in the back of the van. <laughs> no, 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 honey, you're in the wrong compartment, you know. <laughs> she doesn't have compartments. It's just a whirlwind of things that are going on in there, you know. Husbands, if you really, if you really want to mess with your wives, let me tell you what you do. Right before when she's trying to fall asleep and you're just laying there, just say, did you hear that? That's all you got to do. You win. Whatever it was. <laughs> but here's the point. In this whole area of sanctifying love, what he's talking about is he compares the sanctity of the church in the mind of Christ to the sanctity of the bride in the mind of the man. Is that no matter what your compartments are, no matter what you have in your responsibilities or your hobbies or your toys, whatever, is that this isn't even in the same house. That somewhere so far outside and so far above everything else that is going on in your mind, there is a place for your wife where everything else doesn't matter. You can mess with those things. Those things can get broken. They can get stolen. You can mix it all up. You could put a neutron bomb in those things. Th those things don't matter. They're peripheral. But don't mess with my wife. Don't mess with my relationship with my wife. And if any of those other things become an interruption or a distraction from that one thing that is the most essential, then that becomes enemy number one. And that is the idea behind sanctifying love, that he might sanctify it. This is set apart. This is holy. There are all sorts of other things. I mean, think about Jesus for a minute. Think about all of the things, all the compartments that Jesus has. He supports the breath of every man, woman, and child that's alive on the, on the planet. He keeps the heart beating of every person. He is aware of every piece of hair on every head of every person that lives, and he knows when one of them falls to the ground. Every fault line, the rising and the setting of the sun, the order of the universe, the way everything in all of creation works rests upon his hand. And yet the love that he has towards his bride, the church, so far exceeds those responsibilities and all of those other things that he does. That all of that can fade before he will let one thing interrupt his intimacy, his fellowship with his bride. And he says, husbands, this is the kind of love that you're to demonstrate towards your wives. Not in a way where you say it, but in a way where they know it. It's sanctifying love. Her wives are to be separate, untouchable, uncompromised. He moves on and he says, not only are we to love sacrificially and give them sanctifying love, but we're to also give them transforming love. You say, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Let's transform some things. Notice there in verse 27, he says, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church 
not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, the idea here is what he's saying is that Jesus, in the context of Christ, the the head over the church, that he uses the resources at his disposal, in this case, the word. And he employs what he has in order to purify, beautify, and perfect his bride. And Paul is saying that this is also to be an, a, a benchmark or an earmark or a, a, you know, a, 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 whatever of the love that we have towards our wives, that we're to do the same thing. Will you say, well, how does that work? What, what do I have that I can use in, in the context of love towards my wife that will transform her? that will beautify her, that will perfect her, that will ornament her. If you keep a finger here in Ephesians and just turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Because Peter gives us the answer. He tells us, men, this is how you love your wives with transforming love. This is what you have, men. These are the tools in your marital tool belt that you can use to love your wife in a way that will change her. I see the men getting really excited. I hear the Bible page going, you know. By the way, 1 Peter, it was written on the subject, the topic of suffering. So it's fitting that there is a whole section in here on marriage, you know. But he sums up, and listen carefully, he sums up everything he has to say to the men in one verse. But he says a lot. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Verse 7, Peter says this, he says, Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. He tells the men that there are three things, essentially, that you have in your bag of tricks that you can use to love your wife in a way that will impact her, that will evoke a response from her. First of all, he tells us to have knowledge of your wife. Dwell with them according to knowledge. Have knowledge of your wife. That is, know her. Men, know your wife. That's what Peter is basically saying. Well, what do you mean, know her? Of of course I know her. No, no, no. Do you really, man? Do you really know your wife? Who is your wife? What's her favorite color? What's her shoe size? What's her favorite food? What would she order if you go out to eat and you look at the menu? Can you tell what your wife's going to order before she orders it? If she had a choice in a doctor's office to pick up a magazine, what magazine would she read? What brand of lipstick, you know, mascara does she wear? What's her dress size? What restaurant would she choose if she could go out to a restaurant? What's your wife afraid of? What worries her? What concerns her? What's her favorite flower? If you gave your wife a hundred bucks, what would she do with it? Do you really know your wife, men? Do you study your wife? Are you aware of her? Do you know her? He says that we're to know our wives. Many men, the extent of their knowledge of their wives, of their, their relationship with their wives is, well, honey, what's for dinner? And what are you doing about 10 p.m.? You know, and, and that's, that's about as far as it goes for a lot of men concerning their studying, their, their loving of their wives. Peter says, listen, you want your wife to respond? Have knowledge of her. Know your wife. He says, second of all, not only have knowledge of your wife, but then he says, give honor to your wife. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. How do we give honor to our wives? Listen, men, talk to her. Tell her her value, the value that she has. Remember in your mind what it was, the prize that you were winning when you won her at the first. Look at her face. Get into her world. Realize the things that she thinks, the things that she struggles with, and give her the honor. Talk to her. Praise her. Notice the things that she's doing. Give her encouragement. Honor your wives. They'll respond. Not only have knowledge of, not only give honor to, but then he says, be enriched by your wife. You're heirs together of the grace of life. Be enriched by your wife. Listen to the things that she has to say. 
Did you know that every time wisdom is personified in the scriptures, it's always in the female gender? Listen to what she has to say. She has something to contribute. Learn from her. Because Peter says that there are mutual rewards. You're heirs together. That means that the better your wife does spiritually, the better your reward will be in heaven because you are rewarded equally. And so therefore, your mindset should always be to want to bless, to lift up, to praise, to elevate her because in the long run, that's a benefit to you. So give honor to your wife. Now listen, here's the result when men do this and you can flip back over to Ephesians is that when you love your wife this way, when you truly do give yourself sacrificially to her, when she knows that she's sanctified, set apart for you, she's your treasure, when you know her and you love her with this kind of love, here's what happens. Is that she responds to you the same way the church responds to Christ. How does the church respond to Christ? Well, we want to please Him. We want to be conformed into His image. We want to know Him. We want to be intimate. We want to be closer. We want more of Him. And it's the same thing that's true with the husbands and the wives. When the wives are loved by their husbands, they are influenced by them, and it beautifies them. It perfects them. It brings them higher. And so we're told to love them with transforming love. And then he gives us the fourth thing in verses 28 and 29, and that is that we're to love them. And I know this sounds bad, but hear me through. We're to love them with self-love. What do you mean? Verse 28. He says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth, and cherisheth it, even as the Lord does the church. Well, let me ask you, men, how do you love yourself? We love ourselves pretty passionately, wouldn't you say? We're pretty faithful. I, I mean, when, when myself tells me it's hungry, I don't say, didn't you just eat? <laughs> what, are you going to eat the whole house? I don't say that to myself. When I feel like, you know, I could use a new pair of running shoes. I, could need, I need some new shoes. I don't say, what happened to the last pair I bought you? You need shoes again? How many pairs of shoes do you need? What's wrong with your feet, you know? When I want something, you know, if there's, a, you know, a man toy, if my toy closet is shrinking, you know, and I want something. I don't say, listen, I, we can't afford that. You, you know, you, you're just never happy. You're never satisfied with anything, are you? No, no, I, I begin to think, well, how can I get that? What would I have to sell? How will I have to convince? You know, what I, you know and, and I start to do those things. Listen, we don't hate ourselves. We love ourselves. We nourish ourselves. We cherish ourselves. That's what Paul is saying here. And he's saying the same things, the same way that you would treat yourself, treat your wife. Give her the things that she needs. Honor her the same way that you would honor yourself. Love her the same way that you would love yourself. That's how we ought to love our wives. How much time do we spend on ourselves, even just in thought? How often do we think about ourselves, our plans, our ambitions, our situations? We should be giving equal thought to our wives. How about our money? How, how, you know, how do we deal with our money? How do we spend our money on ourselves? How well do we know ourselves? Paul tells us that we're to love our wives the same way that we would love ourselves. So he sums it up. He says that we're to love sacrificially, we're to love sanctifyingly, we're to love transformingly, and we're to love them as we love ourselves. And listen, men, I don't know a woman on the planet that would not be willing to submit to a man who loves his wife the way that Christ loves the church. All right, maybe Nancy Pelosi, but... I don't know her personally, so I can't say. You know. <laughs> he moves on in verses 30 to 32. And here he's speaking to both the husbands and the wives. He has a final word to give to us. He says, For we are members of his body, 
of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now listen, he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. As he speaks to both the husbands and the wives, as he draws to a conclusion, as we draw closer to a close, he reveals a glorious mystery. He tells us here that the marriage relationship between a man and a woman is a picture. That there's something bigger that's being illustrated, that's being demonstrated, that's being shown in this thing that God created called marriage. See, when God made man on the earth, The Bible tells us that man, Adam, that first man that God made, that he was made in the image of God. That is, he singularly and completely was an expression of who the Father is. That's what Adam was. He was an expression of the Father, made in the image of God. And as God reviewed everything that he made, he said, it is good. It is good, it is good, it is good. But when he looked at man, for the first time, God said, it is not good. He said, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, Adam was not lacking. God didn't look at Adam and see that he was toiling under the burden out in the field and that he was having a hard time coming up with names for new organisms as they were presented to him. That wasn't it. He was in glory. He wasn't faulted or fallen. He didn't need help. That wasn't the point when God said it's not good. He wasn't lacking, but he was lonely. God said, or Adam said, there's no help that's meet for me. I see Mr. and Mrs. Monkey, I see Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, I see Mr. and Mrs. Parrot, but there's no Mrs. Adam, there, there, there's no helper, there's no companion for me. And so here's what God did. He put the man into a deep sleep and he opened up his side. And he took something out of the man. I, I like what one commentator said years and years ago. He said he didn't take it from man's foot so that she would be under him. And he didn't take something from man's head that, you know, she would be constantly over him, but he took it from his side that she would be his companion. They would be heart to heart, you know. But he took something out of the man, and with that, he made the woman. And listen to what God says in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, concerning this marriage. He says, this is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man. In the likeness or in the image of God made he him. Now listen, verse 2. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. He didn't say the Adams is. He doesn't say the Mr. and Mrs. Adam. He says he called their name Adam in the day that they were created. So follow me here. Here's what God did. Man, Adam, was made in the image of God, the perfect, complete expression of the Father. But he was lonely, so God put him in a sleep, and he took something, listen, he took something out of the man... Excuse me, with, with it, he made the woman, and then he put them together. He glued them, he cleaved them, he joined them, and then he called their name Adam. That means this, listen. Now, it is the joining of the man and the woman that becomes the expression of who God is. The completion of the expression is no longer in man, singularly, male by himself, but rather it is in the uniting, the marriage, the joining of the male and the female. That is where the image of God is expressed. That's why, by the way, homosexuality is wrong. It's not religious in nature or, you know, the conviction of the Anglo-Saxon, you know, Judeo-Christian culture. That's not the idea. It's not religious but rather it's at the core of God's creation and God's character. It corrupts the expression, the picture that God was painting when he made the man and the woman and he put them together. Now, here's the point. 
understand that when something was taken out of the man, it wasn't just hardware. It wasn't just a rib. God, you know, God has all these resources. He can speak things into existence, but, you know, I need a rib. No, 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 no. It wasn't just the rib. Because he took something else out. He took a part of man's essence, a part of man's nature. He took it out, and he gave it to the woman. See, men, we have, you know, this rigid, rugged strength, you know, this vigor about us. Women, they have a sensitivity, a delicacy. Now, I know I'm painting with a broom here. There's someone going, well, I'm sensitive. You know. No, no, you get the idea. <laughs> we're different. Men and women, we're different by design. God took something out of the man, gave it to the woman, put them together, and said, Adam, this is the full expression. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45 The Apostle Paul called Jesus Christ the last Adam. What does that mean? Well, just as Adam, the first man, was made in the image of God, was the complete and total representation of God, so also Jesus, not created, but he was the very image of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. Hebrews chapter 1 says that he is the express image of the Father. It says it also in Colossians. So Jesus, the last Adam, was sent as the perfect representation, the perfect picture for us of who God is. He was the image of God. Now, he was complete. Jesus was the perfect man. He had the strength and the resolve of the male. He's the bullock of Leviticus chapter 1. He overturned the tables in the temple with eyes ablaze and with biceps bulging. He grabbed the cat of nine tails and it says that he whipped the people that were in there. And he said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. It's to be a house of prayer. He reached down and he grabbed Peter and he pulled him up, a one-arm curl, and put him into the boat. He demonstrated the strength and the resolve of the male, but yet he also possessed the tender sensitivity of the female. He was the red heifer of Numbers 19. He would minister to children selflessly, taking as much time as was needed, even to the chagrin of his disciples. When he turned over the tables, he took the time to carefully release the doves and see to it that none of them were harmed, none of them were hurt. He would sit on a donkey and weep over Jerusalem and say, How many times would I have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not? What did he say? His disciples, (laughs) a mother hen, Lord. Where's the blazing eyes, the bulging biceps? No, 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 listen. He was the perfect blend of masculine and feminine perfectly. Say, are you talking about Michael Jackson? (laughs) No. It's not Michael Jackson. It's perfection. And here's what Paul is saying. Listen carefully as we close. Just like Adam had his side opened, and from his side a bride was formed and brought into unity with him. He's saying, so too Jesus. On the cross, his side was opened as the spear was thrust into his side, and it says that blood and water poured out. It was for the sake of birthing his bride. The creation of his bride. Look with me, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32 again. He says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That the bride, you and I, the church of Jesus Christ, we were taken from his side. And now we are joined unto him. 
The two have become one. That's why over and over again in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul says we're in Christ. We're not with Christ. We're not going to Christ. We are in Christ. We're joined to him. And the implication is twofold. First of all, it's Jesus Christ in the church that right now is the expression of God within the world. That just as Adam and his wife were joined and and they became the expression of who God is, now it's Christ in the church. That's the expression in the world. That's number one. But number two, it's the secret to a happy marriage as well. Because just as Jesus Christ is the head and the completer of the church, so also Jesus Christ is the head and the completer of us individually. Let's finish this in verse 33. He says, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, And the wife, see that she reverence her husband. After giving us the picture of this mystery, Christ in the church, he brings it back to our individual marriages. And he says, listen, this is the glue that will keep a marriage together. Fulfill the God-given role that you've been given. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, reverence your husbands. It will make your marriage work. It will make it last. The worship team can come, but as we close, can I tell you the secret of a happy marriage? Listen, husband, wife, the secret of success and blessing within your marriage is not, listen carefully, if you've heard nothing else, please hear this, it is not found in your wife or in your husband. If you are dissatisfied in your marriage tonight, It is not the fault of your spouse. They are to be your companion, but they can never be your completer. It cannot be found in them. They don't possess the ability to satisfy you the way that you need, the way that you long, the way that you want. Your spouse is missing something. They don't have everything that you need. But Jesus Christ is everything. Men help walk with you through the aisles of Home Depot endlessly. He'll wax the chrome rim of the bumper of your 67 Mustang with joy, appreciating what it means to you. Women, he'll look at all of those silly things at Hobby Lobby with you while you stroll through those aisles and think about what that would look like hanging over the curtains in the dining room, you know, and all the rest with perfect appreciation for what you see and who you are. And when you find your fulfillment, not in your spouse, not in your husband or your wife, but in the person of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden your soul becomes satisfied and your marriage begins to blossom and bloom. Because you're not trying to draw something from your spouse that they were never intended to give to you but rather the two of you are drawing from Christ and you're able to love one another selflessly. It works. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Solomon writes, he says, Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Jesus is the cord that holds the two pieces of yarn that are you and your wife together. It works. Father, we thank you so much for your word tonight. We ask that you would help us. We know in this day that we live in where the very definition of marriage is challenged. Oh, not the man and a woman part, Lord, but even the very concept of why we marry and what it means. And we just pray that tonight you would again remind us, Lord, of what you intended, what you designed, and that you would light a fire in our marriages again. 
pray for the wives, Lord, that you would give them the grace to love you more than they love their husbands. I pray for the men that they would love their wives like Christ loved the church. And that, Lord, the people in this church would become a light to the world as to what it means to have a successful marriage in a spiritually enriched home. So please help us, Father. Let us hear your voice. Speak to us as we sing this last song. We pray in Jesus' name.